And if you would, turn with me to the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus 7 and 8 today. We've come to the plagues of Exodus. And when it comes to the plagues of Exodus, for the skeptic of the Bible, he or she will likely have some problems with this stuff. One problem could be regarding the miraculous. For some people, the plagues of Exodus must have been natural disasters that happened among a simple and superstitious people that blamed natural events on God. Others suggest that these are merely literary creations, fanciful storytelling, like C.S. Lewis's Talking Lion. Another potential problem with the plagues is the historicity, or maybe the lack thereof. Some say there isn't sufficient historical and archaeological evidence of a mass group of Israelites in Egypt, nor of these cataclysmic events that we read about. And for others, there may be a bit of a moral hang-up when it comes to the plagues. Some think that this reflects a, a rather grouchy God with a quick temper. He likes to blow things up and make people suffer. Sort of the quintessential example of what some people call, you know, the God of the Old Testament. Well, I'm not going to take time today to interact with these objections. But not because I'm not at all sympathetic to them. Not because there aren't some good answers to them. And so just by the way, I'll say in passing, if it's the, super, if it's the miraculous and the supernatural that you're hung up on, you should read C.S. Lewis's book called Miracles. It'd be a great help to you. On the historicity of Exodus, a book like one written by J.K. Hoffmeyer, titled Israel in Egypt, the Evidence for the Authenticity of the Exodus, published by Oxford University Press. That would be helpful to you if you want to dig deeply into the historicity and possible authenticity of the Exodus account. And while I'm very thankful for those who answer the skeptics' questions and dig deep into history and philosophical issues, today I want to suggest to you that the text of Exodus does something very different than that. Today I want to suggest to you that we haven't yet understood the God of the Exodus if we come to put him under a microscope or the text in a petri dish. We're playing the wrong role in the story if we come to this God with a kind of, oh yeah, Prove it mindset. I believe that these are historical events that happen just as we read them. But the goal of telling these events in the Bible is not mere history and factual record. The goal is that we stand in awe of this God. The goal is that we know and live in light of a God who saves and judges in these spectacularly glorious, powerful ways. 
the goal is that we would know and live in light of, well, as later scripture will put it, a God who is the Lord and there is none beside him. As we saw briefly last week, verses 8 to 13 of Exodus 7 tell us about the first miracle that takes place in Pharaoh's presence. It's what we could call the prelude to the plagues. The prelude to the plagues. In fact, let's just read it together. Verses 8 to 13 of Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. Now, as we said last week, this prelude to the plagues, this miracle is no plain miracle. It's a, it's a sign. It signifies something. It doesn't just tell us that God is powerful or has control over nature, but that it teaches something. It instructs in a sort of metaphor way. And so we said last week that this tells us, yes, Egypt is powerful, but not ultimately so. The true God is about to go toe-to-toe against Pharaoh and against the Egyptian gods, and God is about to eat them up. God is about to swallow them whole. God is about to destroy them. Now, God could have done that very thing in a single gulp, you could say. In fact, that's what the illustration is. That's what the miracle is, a snake eating another snake. God could have made it sudden like that, defeating Pharaoh immediately, right then. But instead, he chose to draw things out. He's made that plain. In chapter 3, verse 20, he said he's going to stretch out his hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And then earlier in chapter 7, he said, I will multiply my signs in wonders. I will do great acts of judgment that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them. Those are promises of the plagues to come. Water turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock dying, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn males. Now many Bible scholars have noted a a literary structure that puts these plagues in three cycles. The first nine being the three cycles. There's one through three, then there's four through six, then there's seven through nine. Tenth being the culmination. It sort of stands alone. And there are a few indications that that is, that is right and good. So let me just show you some homework on this. You just look down in your Bibles. We'll, we'll get to these in due time, but... Notice that if this is true, there are three cycles of three 
plagues. While the first of each three cycles begins with a reference to the morning. To the morning. So chapter 7, verse 15, that's the first plague. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. And chapter 8, verse 20, that's the fourth plague, second cycle. Rise up early in the morning. And then chapter 9, verse 13, the seventh plague. Rise up early in the morning. You might say, well, it says morning because that's when it was. Well, yeah, but, but there are more clues. Another indication of the nine plagues in groups of three is that in the first three plagues, Aaron's staff is the instrument by which the miracle takes place. In the second, third, uh, the second three, there's no such instrument. It's just spoken. And then in the final three plagues, it's Moses. Moses' staff or his hand is the instrument by which the miraculous takes place. And then just one more indication of a kind of tripart structure to these nine plagues is that the last in each of the cycles, the third, the sixth, the ninth, are all really similar in that they are short. There's no announcement to Pharaoh. God just jumps in and tells Moses and Aaron to do something, and it happens. No warning. So with that literary structure in mind, we'll take three plagues per week over this week and the next and the next, and then after that, the tenth. We could call this section of Scripture God versus the gods. It's God versus the gods. One, because Pharaoh thinks himself a god, and God is about to make it very clear he is not. God alone is God. And because the many Egyptian gods are actually made fun of and conquered in these ten plagues in various ways. It's God versus the gods round one. Let's read the first plague, chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Take your, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. 
So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So here's the first plague. The Nile turned to blood. As with most of these plagues, there is an announcement to Pharaoh at the beginning. And here, God says through Moses and Aaron in verse 16, Let my people go that they may serve me. And that word serve is really important to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus began on the theme of the Israelites serving Pharaoh. It was called in chapter 1, verse 14, hard service. And of course, the book will end with the people not in Egypt anymore. The people of Israel will be serving their God, serving him in worship. So that's where it's going. That's what it's all about. That's what each announcement to Pharaoh preceding the plague is all about. Let my people go that they may serve me. God is to be served, not Pharaoh. These are God's people, not Pharaoh's people. And God will demonstrate that bit by bit, plague after plague, like the Nile being turned to blood, which has multi-layers to it. For one, the Nile River was something like what the heart is to a human body. It meant everything. Nothing else worked without it. The Nile was their water source. It was their drinking water. It, it meant decently clean bathing. It was their primary highway for trade. It flooded annually, which was a good thing, because it went up into the ground. And there, that ground became fertile topsoil for their crops. Of course, the Nile provided fish to eat as well. So again, like a heart is to a human being, so the Nile was to Egypt. But it was more than just practically important. It was worshipped. It was worshipped by the Egyptians. The Egyptians identified the Nile with the god of Hapi. Hapi, H-A-P-I. A god that they portrayed as a man with human breasts in a pregnant abdomen. There's the idea of fertility behind that. Fertility. The Nile gave life. And it was celebrated. They wrote praise songs to the Nile and Hopi. Like this one. Hail to your countenance, Hopi. Who goes from the land? Who comes to deliver Egypt? Who brings food and creates every sort of good thing? Everything has come into being through his power. And so it was this Nile... This God, quote-unquote, this life-giver, this thing celebrated and worshipped, that God, through his servants Moses and Aaron, turned into blood. And yes, blood. We don't need to explain this away as some sort of natural phenomenon. Others have tried that. They've said maybe red clay you know, slipped off and fell into the river 
and it gave it a red appearance. Well, you don't need to go there, and you mustn't go there. The whole point is that this is supernatural. The whole point is that God is showing off. The whole point is that this is a display of his unusual power, not his typical way of doing things. The God who creates the cosmos out of nothing doesn't need a, doesn't need a, a scientific or, or naturalistic explanation for these plagues. What was the source of life for the Egyptians became a cesspool of death. What was once celebrated in worship became a, a horrible stench. What was once back in chapter 1 of Exodus, the means by which Hebrew male children were executed, the Nile, has now been Killed, slain, at least temporarily so. So Pharaoh is no match for the true God. Hoppy's no match for the true God who made all things. Or did he? Is he the only God? Well, that's what Pharaoh probably is wondering when his magicians can do the same very thing. They do it by their secret arts, verse 22. Like their replication of the staffs turned into snakes. So here the replication of the water turned into blood likely wasn't some sleight of hand or smoke and mirrors, but satanic power. That's a real thing. Of course, it's no match for God's supreme power, as we shall see. But for now, it's enough for Pharaoh to dismiss Moses and Aaron and their God and simply turn and go back home. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, verse 22. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He didn't even take this to heart. Now, just as we said last week when we talked about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, that at times in the book of Exodus, it's attributed to God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and other times in the book of Exodus, it's attributed to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Well, we see both here. Pharaoh's heart is hard just as the Lord said. He said it in chapter 4, verse 21. He said it in chapter 7, verse 3. It's just as the Lord said or decreed. And yet, on another level, you can say Pharaoh wouldn't listen. He didn't take it to heart, and therefore he bears full responsibility for it. It doesn't say he wouldn't listen because he couldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. He didn't take it to heart. And so we all bear responsibility to respond to God appropriately. None of us can blame him for our unbelief or our stubbornness or hard-heartedness. Well, let's read on with the second plague here. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. 
The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. He said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, the second plague, frogs, 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 and more frogs. Notice again, like the first plague, the second one has an announcement to Pharaoh. It's a demand, let my people go, but it's also a warning. I think implied is that there's some kind of delay here between the announcement and the actual event. Verse 2, if you refuse to let them go... Here come the frogs. Now, we don't know how long of a span of time there was between the announcement and the frogs, but presumably there's a small window of some kind. Now, it might be good at this point to, for me to suggest to you some of the typical components or elements that are in all or most of these plagues so we can keep track of them as we go through them together, especially as we want to, at times, compare and contrast. We'll see these elements or these components come or go in some cases. So here are eight D words that came to mind as I was studying this. Well, not quite just came to mind. I also used thesaurus.com, one of my best friends. So here's the first component, demand. God demands of Pharaoh, let my people go. That's in all of the plagues except three and six and nine, which are sudden. Then secondly, there's delay. That's not in all of them, but here and in others, there's some delay. There's some warning. And then third, we have description. The plague is described how it's going to happen before it happens, and it's described in in a lot of detail. And then fourth, there's devastation. This is the actual event. This is the plague actually happening. And fifth, we could call it depiction. 
This is what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, as an Egyptian god is being conquered and even mocked. There's a depiction there. Sixth is dilemma. Pharaoh wrestles with what's going on. He at times even wants to barter. He wants to maybe negotiate and see if he can get a little bit more or face a little less than a total loss of all the Israelites. And then God desists. You might think of the word desist as a negative word, like cease and desist, but it just means stop. And so eventually the plague does stop. We don't know how long in each case, but, but eventually God relents. He ends the plague. And yet at the end, the last D, there is defiance. Pharaoh defies the Lord with his hardened heart and will not let them go. So take the third D word, description, and notice just how thorough and vivid the description is with this invasion of frogs. Frogs are everywhere, in your house, on your countertops, in your bowls, in your bed, in your oven, and on you. Now this isn't as deadly as the Nile River turning to blood, but it's not just inconvenient. It's not just a nuisance. Psalm 78, 45 Describing this, it says, God sent them frogs which destroyed them. Maybe only third grade boys would like Egypt in the days where there are frogs everywhere. Everyone else is freaking out. And there's irony in the fact that frogs were worshipped by Egyptians. The frog was one of many you could say mascots of their deities. And so there is a depiction, another one of our D words, a depiction going on in multiple implications, with multiple implications. And Charles Spurgeon captures this well in his sermon titled, Take Away the Frogs. He says, there was a suitableness in God's choosing the frogs to humble Egypt's king, because frogs were worshipped by that nation as emblems of the deity. Images of a certain frog-headed goddess were placed in the catacombs, and frogs themselves were preserved with sacred honors. It was as if God was saying, These are your gods, O Egypt. You shall have enough of them. Pharaoh himself shall pay a new reverence to these reptiles. As the true God is everywhere present around us, in our bedchambers, in the streets, so shall Pharaoh find every place filled with what he chooses to call divine. Is it not a just way of dealing with him? And I say it is just, and it is funny, it is ironic. And so notice Pharaoh's dilemma, his response to this. Well, for the first time, he calls Moses and Aaron back. Remember before, when the first plague came to an end, he hardened his heart. It wasn't enough for him to do anything more than yawn, because his magicians could do the same. Well, now his magicians can do the same, and yet 
he seeks out Moses and Aaron to have them ask the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, for the Lord to take him away. Now that looks promising. I don't think at this point Pharaoh is um, a Christian, a, a worshiper, or even a monotheist. But he's actually looking beyond Egyptian gods for a god who not only can bring frogs in, but take them out. And so, Moses says, yeah, we'll do that, so that you will know that there is one God. And God answers Moses' prayer. The frogs die. And yet, like a, like a bad chorus to a song, verse 15 when the frogs were dead and the mess started to get cleaned up, when there was a respite, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Now we should pause here and just take a moment to reflect on the, the familiarity of Pharaoh's spiritual amnesia. I'm sure many of us have at times been in trouble and sought God out in trouble, maybe even promised to do some, something good and something right that he wanted us to do, if only he would help us, only to conveniently forget about all that once the trouble went away. Well, what a scary thing that is. What a Pharaoh-like thing that is. He knew that God was not only able to produce frogs in mass and put them everywhere, but he was able to take them out. And yet when they were gone, his need for God was gone. And it was as if this God had been swept up and put in heaps with the dead frogs. Now praise God that we can call on him in times of trouble. How often is that a theme in scripture? How many psalms have that idea of calling on God in times of trouble, in him delivering us, hearing us? Praise God for it. But let's not forget him when there is a, a season of relative ease or peace. As if, the, as if God was any less God. As if we needed him any less. Let's learn that from Pharaoh. Well, let's read of the third plague now, verses 16 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, here's the third plague, gnats. Notice no message for Pharaoh, no warning, no delay. He doesn't know it's coming, but then they're everywhere. And they probably weren't gnats. The word can be translated lice. 
Notice they were on man and beast, verse 17. And gnats just fly around. Lice are on man and beast. God could have used a variety of means of getting Pharaoh's attention. God could have written in the sky for all of Egypt to to read and to see. Why would God do these things like bloody water, multiplying frogs, and lice everywhere? Well, I don't know if it's reading too much into it, but, but I have a feeling that maybe one element to the lice is that God was literally under their skin. He was really literally bugging them. He was making their skin crawl, literally, that they would know that he's the Lord and there's none besides him. That they would know that he's the God of creation. He is the God of dust and bugs. So never mind that so-called Egyptian God, the God of the earth, Geb, God was in essence throwing Geb up into the air and onto his people, turning him against them. What else is here? Well, decreation for one thing. The God of creation is here communicating a kind of decreation. In the original creation, God created man from the dust. And now, From the dust, he plagues man and beast. In fact, all of the plagues can be seen as some sort of an undoing of creation in a sense. The very elements that were blessed and good and very good in Genesis 1 and 2 are now the means of death and destruction and stench and frustration. Why? Because God's cruel, because he likes people to suffer, because he he likes to blow stuff up. Well, no, remember, all this is so that his people would serve him and not Pharaoh. The goal is their worship, salvation and judgment. They're always two sides to one coin. There's no salvation without judgment. Even at the cross of Christ, there is judgment on the innocent for us. He took our judgment that we would be saved. And so the Egyptians are justly judged so that God would save his people. And so that they, Israel and Egyptians, would know that he's the Lord. And that they would know that there is no one like our God. So God is ratcheting up things. He's making things clearer with each step. He makes it clearer that he's the one true God when the magicians could not replicate turning dust into gnats or lice. Verse 18, they could not. They tried. They could turn water into blood, and they could produce miraculous frogs. They have a power, but it's not supreme power, and they Come to acknowledge it. So here's the conclusion of the matter, at least a a provisional conclusion for now. It's on the lips of the magicians who say to Pharaoh in verse 19, this is the finger of God. 
And from here on out, there's no more competitions between magicians and the true God. There are no more of them replicating miracles. The magicians will come up in, in the sixth plague, and they can't even get out of bed. We'll see it next week. God is showing his power and his plan in spectacular and undeniable ways. The magicians, well, they're certainly not converted. They don't worship. They're probably not even monotheists. It could be translated here, this is the finger of a God. But at least this much is true. They are recognizing a power beyond whatever else they know. A power beyond their arts. A power beyond their gods. As for Pharaoh, well, the chorus comes back up again. Verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them. Not even his magicians. He wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Does God need to get your attention today? What would it take for God to get your attention? What's he have to do? If you're not a Christian this morning, I ask, what would it take for God to get your attention? A life-threatening disease? Well, he may do that. And if, if that means your eternal salvation, then it's all right. It's good. But be careful don't wait for some plague. Don't wait for some event to believe him and trust him then because you may not believe or trust him then. Pharaoh didn't. Pharaoh had seen the Nile turn to blood. He had experienced the frogs for himself. He had lice on his body. The magicians told him it was the finger of God, and he would not. Maybe you'd say, well, I'll believe if he does something big, if God does something spectacular, if God does something undeniably miraculous, then I'd believe. Well, hasn't he done enough? Isn't this book enough? Here's the record of lots and lots of things he did in glorious and spectacular ways. Do not presume upon him to give you a sign that he's already given in here. And by the way, don't look, don't forget to look elsewhere. Your life, in a sense, is a miracle. Your provision, your sustenance, your protection, it's all his doing. Has he not done enough to get your attention? He speaks to me everywhere. We sang just a little bit ago. I pray you'd hear it and heed it. Don't be like those religious leaders in Matthew 12 who demanded of Jesus a sign, a miracle. They said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? The cross and resurrection. There's your sign. That's all you need. 
I fear it may not be enough. In Luke 16, we read the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And when the rich man died and went to Hades and suffered greatly, he had concerns for his living brothers and said to Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Father Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You want, you want proof? Well, here, Father Abraham says, the Bible, Moses and the prophets. If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you're not going to even believe a resurrected man. Unbelief is sometimes that stupid and stubborn and senseless. Well, I pray that today you'd come to see the cross and resurrection as the supreme example of the finger of God. You want to see power? You want to see glory? Yeah, go ahead. Look at Exodus. But remember that Exodus is a, a salvation story that foreshadows and points ahead to the ultimate salvation story that's in Jesus and through his cross and resurrection. That's the finger of God. That's power on display. It doesn't look like power. Oh, but it is to those who believe. Christian, we serve a God who goes to great lengths to save his people. Isn't that curious? He's wanting to show them who he is in saving them so that they would serve him and be his people. We have a God who goes to great lengths to make himself known. And we must stand in awe of it. And the plagues of Exodus may be something you're pretty familiar with. After the first service, someone told me that there is a, a kid's song which runs through the plagues so that you can memorize the order of these plagues. I don't know if that's your favorite song or not. It'd be kind of odd, but, but you might know the plague song. Do you know the God of the plagues? Do you stand in awe of him? The book of Exodus can be a tough book to apply to modern-day Christians because well, we're not in slavery, and we're not expecting God to show up in these explosive, miraculous ways like they saw. We shouldn't be expecting that. So how do we apply Exodus to us? Well, for one, we get a hint from the Psalms that pick up on the Exodus story. Psalm Psalm 78 and 105 and 106 and 135 and 136 are historical psalms. And when they come to the point of the Exodus, here's what they say. Don't forget. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget to live in light of this. Beware. Don't harden your heart. Keep trusting him. Trust him not just when he Shows up in power and in glory. Trust him now. He's the God of power and glory. Trust him not just when it's convenient to trust him. Trust him not just when there's no other alternative but to trust him. But trust him. Trust the God of the Bible. 
and keep trusting him. And trust him alone. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. And the human heart is an idol factory not just when statues are created and gods are made up like Hoppy. No, still today, we're all idol factories. And our idols in 21st century America are culturally acceptable things like entertainment and reputation and clothes and appearance and resumes and retirement packages and income brackets. First John ends like this. My little children flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. And so I say today that with the futile and fleeting gods of Egypt in mind, flee idolatry and cling to the true and living God. What will it take? Well, don't wait for that. Flee idols today. Cling to this God afresh. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you to not only forgive our incessant idolatry, but to begin to purify us, to give us new inclinations, a new heart, one that doesn't just produce idols, but actually has love for you and you alone. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your love, and for your truth. May we hate idols more. May we love you more today. For your namesake and glory. Amen.